Hello and welcome back to The New Consent Narrative, a podcast where we bring a new lens on relationship and sexual violence and what you can do about it. Our aim is to share information in a relatable, easy, and digestible manner for college students who want to be a part of the solution but may not know where to start. My name is Jillian McBain. I am now a junior at the University of Utah studying health, society, and policy. I'm passionate about ending sexual violence, which is why I work as a staff member at the U's McCluskey Center for Violence Prevention, Research, and Education. And I'm hosting this podcast to hopefully get our messages across to more people on campus and farther out. I come from an upper middle class background and identify as a white cisgender woman, which shapes a lot of the perspectives that I share. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Reeves, another student staff member at the MCVP. Lauren, would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. Hi, everybody. I'm Lauren. I'm a senior, double majoring in psychology and gender studies. I graduate in the spring, which is very exciting. And as for my identities, throughout my childhood, my family was lower class, though today I would consider myself middle class. I'm also a white cisgender woman. Today, we are going to be talking about nuance. We'll start by giving a little definition of what it is, which is actually kind of difficult because the very nature of nuance makes it hard to define. When it comes to relationship and sexual violence, nuance relates to complexity and the gray area. We tend to look for one-size-fits-all solutions for issues we perceive as black and white, rather than addressing this complexity and the gray areas that exist related to this entire topic. Now we're going to dive a little deeper and start really explaining what we're talking about. Lauren, I'll start by asking you, where do we see black and white thinking when it comes to relationship and sexual violence? What might this mean or look like? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind with black and white thinking about what counts as sexual violence is that violence is always identifiable and obvious. Harm takes shape in many different ways, which is why it's so hard to end it. It can be hard to identify things as harmful, which is one reason why people cause harm. And then similarly, black and white thinking about how no means no and yes means yes. Originally on college campuses and around the country, we started out with the idea that no means no. And for some people, this did work. And this is important work, because as long as someone didn't say no, you had consent. But no was and is seen as a negotiation now. So today, culturally and legally, we've switched to yes means yes. And so only an affirmative, enthusiastic yes meant consent. So now anything other than achieving that affirmative yes is violence. But this hides how consent isn't always verbal. It can be nonverbal. It can be contextual, identity-based. You might verbally say yes, but your body language is screaming no, like in a penetrative context with closed legs. Don't really want to penetrate someone with closed legs. Um, you also might have been drinking, which is another important context to note. Those are awesome examples, Lauren. Thanks for bringing up affirmative consent and how that doesn't always work. Going off of that, I'd like to bring up how a lot of times when we think of sexual assault, we think of an aggressive assault. And part of the reason for this is actually because of how we respond to sexual violence on a legal level. So VAWA, or the Violence Against Women Act of 1994, essentially promoted the criminalization of people who caused harm to prove that the government was taking sexual violence and specifically violence against women more seriously. So sentencing for someone who was found guilty of sexual violence was enhanced and there were basically stricter penalties. 
we now have seen, though, that having a response like this in place has almost conditioned us to only see sexual assault as something that gets handled on a criminal level, and it oftentimes hides more nuanced instances of harm that is caused that may not be necessarily illegal or make it to a legal level, even if it is, but this just isn't what we think of as much when we think of sexual violence. And I'd like to make sure that I say that this kind of stuff is really difficult to address, especially coming from the identity of a woman. I know that VAWA is designed to protect someone like me, someone like you, but I've also had to consider how it's contributed to a skewed perception of violence and how it manifests and how it should be handled. Although both consensual sex and rape or aggressive assaults happen, there is so much in between and gray area. Also like to make sure that our listeners know that a lot of sexual assaults actually start consensual but can turn into assault if one person pushes too far or keeps going when the other person wants to stop. Those are all great examples. And another one that I'd like to bring up is the idea of the survivor-perpetrator binary. When it comes to relationship and sexual violence, we perceive ourselves as either a survivor or the person who harmed the survivor. And that isn't true. We know from research that people who cause harm are often survivors themselves. They can have experiences of childhood sexual abuse, systemic oppression. There's a lot of different ways in which harm manifests, and that can influence why people then later cause harm. That doesn't mean we should excuse their actions. People who cause harm should and must be accountable for the harm that they've caused. Also need to recognize that you're more likely to cause harm if you've experienced harm yourself. People who cause harm are often survivors too, so that idea of that binary is false. And not only that, accountability for harm can also take shape in many ways. And so this can also be nuanced. The ways in which people hold themselves accountable for the harm they've caused can depend on what a survivor feels is necessary. And allowing for spaces where people who have harmed can process what they've done and address any trauma that they might have experienced in their own lives can even help prevent them from engaging in future harmful behavior, which is an aspect of prevention and accountability I don't think many people think about. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. That makes me think of a quote by Daniel Sarad. Nobody enters violence for the first time by committing it. She's a well-known author and activist. But this quote of hers essentially means that we know that people who have experienced harm, for example, whether they grew up in a household where violence was the norm or they experienced harm in their relationships growing up, actually puts them at an increased risk to cause harm to others. We have this idea of a kind of angelic, perfect survivor, and on the other hand, a horrible, evil perpetrator, but that's just not real, and we have to think beyond this binary that puts these different qualities to people who are both experiencing and causing harm. We have to start recognizing people for their full, complex identities and also our own capacity to cause harm. And going along with that, there's also a survivor-victim binary. So when we're talking with people, there's kind of a difference in the connotation of the words survivor and the word victim. 
There seems to be this sense that people who have experienced sexual assault need to completely overcompensate and go above and beyond to help others in similar situations. To be a survivor, they have to overcome everything, like I said, make it out on top, but it puts so much responsibility on the victim and it doesn't recognize them for their strengths moving through the process of healing, which, as many of us know, has ups and downs. It's not a linear process. It's not easy. And we have to stop thinking in this incorrect binary that survivor or victim. It's not one or the other. Survivors have baggage and scars just as victims can carry pride and triumph. And additionally, this binary fails to account for stories of survival of violence. And you can identify as both. I feel very strongly that we need to get rid of that binary where you have to choose one or the other in our society. I agree. Okay, Lauren, next question. Can you give some examples of the very structured, one-size-fits-all solution that we see being used in response to relationship and sexual violence in our world today? Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind would be mandatory sexual assault trainings as well as bystander intervention initiatives. Both of these are presented as ways to prevent violence, but they are not primary prevention at all. Mentory sexual violence trainings just assume that harm only happens in very specific ways based off the very specific scenarios that they present. And they don't allow for conversations that discuss how harm happens in nuanced, complex ways by the very nature of Mm -hmm. the training itself. Bystander intervention initiatives then state that the burden of stopping violence is still not on the people causing harm in the first place because bystanders are supposed to intervene. These initiatives can also hide how people might not always feel safe intervening depending on their own prior experiences, their relationship and lack thereof to the person that is causing harm, or the social and institutional power or status of the person causing harm too. Bystander intervention initiatives also put people on the lookout for that very obvious stranger danger, evil perpetrator that you were mentioning Mm -hmm. earlier, when in reality, people tend to harm the people that they know. And some people who cause harm are those we'd otherwise call good people. Bystander interventions aren't necessarily working in those scenarios. And the fact that they're mandatory can also result in a boomerang effect which can happen when individuals are forced to engage in this type of content. They see behaviors they've been enacting, being presented as harmful, don't want to view themselves as harmful, and so they then double down on continuing those actions because of that. So presenting these trainings as the best ways that college students, or really anyone, can learn to prevent causing harm themselves or prevent others from doing, and emphasizing them as harm will not happen on our campus if students engage with these trainings isn't actually going to substantially prevent harm from happening in the first place, which is really what we need to do when addressing college sexual violence issues. I actually have an anecdote about my own personal experiences with these. I was looking back at my old files and found that I had saved my very first sexual assault training under things I had to do for the U for some reason, and then my second training under things I had to do again for some reason. And I took these so seriously. Like, I took notes and everything because I was afraid that I would fail the training and look like a perpetrator because, again, passing these things are presented as, you will not cause harm if you do this. You will help prevent harm if you do this. And I never wanted to be a person that caused harm or helped facilitate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lauren, for sharing your experiences with these trainings and how they affected you and just overall how 
They don't work, even though they're really well intended. They don't work. I know that our listeners clicked through the mandatory training videos during freshman orientation because I did too. I don't think that anybody actually watches those videos in full length or pays attention to the extent that they're supposed to. Except for me. Yes, you did. You did. (laughs) But I actually believe that this type of education sells us as students short. A lot of the times the examples of harmful behavior used in the videos is something that is so obviously wrong. It's like we're not actually learning anything. So for example, it'll be a video of a stranger spiking a girl's drink at a party and then proceeding to take advantage of her later, which of course everyone is going to agree that's wrong. I think everyone has the capacity to understand that. I think we also have the capacity to understand how something like wearing your partner down by saying please a bunch of times or moving closer and closer or touching them more and more until they eventually agree to sex is also harmful. I think that we as students, as people have the potential to understand both of those. The problem with these school trainings that we have is they settle for the baseline and don't push students to consider the other ways that harm could be happening like I just mentioned. So what should we do about this? Schools need to focus on the more nuanced buzzword of the day, subtle scenarios of sexual violence. I know that students have the capacity to understand them. A lot of people do want to do better and talk about these issues and understand it better, especially from my experience. When it comes to bystander intervention, being focused as prevention It's not prevention. It's not complete solution. It's not foolproof, even though we would want it to be. It actually can put people in harm's way, and people are less likely to intervene if they don't identify with the person that's being harmed or they can't see themselves in the same position. Here's an example. A white woman is less likely to intervene with a black woman being harmed if she sees it's happening because she can't see herself in that situation as much. And the same goes for the person causing harm. So if we don't view them as harmful, meaning usually a male, usually somebody with a strong build that seems like they have intentions, like we get a bad vibe from them, we're also less likely to intervene. And this is super problematic because like we say all the time, we all have the potential to cause harm no matter what we look like and no matter what our intentions are. So hopefully that kind of explains why bystander intervention and these mandatory trainings are not perfect. They're not foolproof. There are flaws in them. Now, Lauren, would you like to fill in our listeners on what we're doing at the MCVP to steer away from these black and white solutions and narratives to a more one-size-fits-all solution? Yeah. So one of the things that we're trying to do here is deliberately addressing violence prevention among multiple groups through our action projects. These are all centered around what student staff are passionate about or communities are a part of. Overall, a lot of us have focused on workshopping. We've done a book club, which people might have seen advertisements for. A lot of us have done blogging journaling as well. We're all we're all doing our journals. And then for me personally, I've really focused on blogging. I've loved writing as an outlet and as a way to communicate on a variety of topics. And I also actually did an event. 
It was called Consensual Conversations. It was in collaboration with another on-campus organization. We wanted to deliberately target the complexity of consent and that nuance among U of U students in different contexts. Identities, drinking, relationship status, those types of things. And we did so through like an anonymous question submission to directly target things on our campus that students legitimately and literally had questions about that no one else was really answering for them. Yeah, that project of yours last semester was so awesome. Thanks for sharing all of those too. I actually feel like I should give a little bit of context. So we as the center obviously work towards addressing relationship and sexual violence. Us as student staff, we do these through action projects. So that is kind of what we're talking about here and some of what Lauren mentioned. Another thing that we do is workshops. So one of the workshops I did this year with our graduate assistant, Allie, was had an activity in it called a continuum of harm activity where we essentially asked the participants in it to rank instances of harm from most to least harmful and it's supposed to be basically an impossible and uncomfortable activity because who's to say that rape by a stranger is more or less harmful than rape by a significant other and also because everyone has different experiences of harm so some people might read the card and interpret it not really as harmful when another person might think that that is really harmful. Some examples of that are tracking someone's location or someone hugging you without asking consent first. We can have extremely different perceptions and experiences with this. I'd like to share a philosophy that also kind of guides our work. So Miriam Kaba is an activist who primarily works to end the criminalization of black youth in America and she does many other projects and work. She is an incredible woman and if you feel inspired you should look into her work. She has a philosophy called One Million Experiments which basically means that we will never address something through one system or one solution or using the things that have always been done. We have to try one million different things if we want to actually reach a solution. That's kind of what we do here. We we do so much different stuff that it's almost hard to um, sum it all up because there, there really are just so many different ways that we want to end violence because we know that the one-size-fits-all solutions that have been used and tried don't work like we just went over. Another thing, like you said, with the blogs, we produce a lot of those on all different topics. Um, and then we also journal. For myself, I do so much processing in my work journal, just trying to understand everything I'm learning about and how I can apply it. And it oftentimes becomes really messy and freakishly long, but that's okay because that is what our work is. I'd like to reiterate that our focus is on interrupting harm when it starts rather than trying to keep people out of harm's way. This means that we concentrate on people who cause harm and how those harmful actions can be changed. And like you can imagine, trying to find a solution to that is extremely complicated. But it's so worth it because we believe that this is literally the solution to ending relationship and sexual violence. Back to your own life, Lauren, can you share kind of a personal example where you saw your perspective shift from black and white thinking, whether it was in this job or just in your life towards a more nuanced understanding of a topic where you kind of saw the gray area? Yeah, I'd love to. I actually feel like the way my journey from black and white thinking towards more nuance has been in my personal life and then kind of creeped into my professional work Mm -hmm. here at the MCVP. 
So I think I started this shifting with actually my first gender studies class. Obviously now I'm a major, but back then it was my very first. I took it as a generals class because I was very passionate about justice and advocacy work. But in hindsight, my knowledge then was so surface level, particularly when it came to violence and marginalization. The class challenged me to confront my black and white thinking and broaden my worldview with language and the knowledge it presented. And it helped set me on a path to explore complexity in terms of race, gender, class, sexuality, ability, anything related to marginalization, including sexual violence. I even found old extra credit assignments about how I wasn't certain how to address sexual violence in the world and what I wanted to do about ending it and preventing it. But I did state there that I wanted to learn more. Now here I am, actively trying to end sexual violence. And I'm not certain how realistic this is, but I really do feel like the world would be a better place if everyone took a gender studies class just to start challenging that black and white thinking and embrace exploring nuance. That's my subtle plug. Yeah, thank you for sharing the example from your class. I feel like I've learned so much in my class is two. I'm currently taking this class called social epidemiology, which is a lot about the social determinants of health, how we grow up, like the conditions that we grow up in affect our health. So it focuses on those issues of race, class, gender, really just thinking on more of a broad lens of how somebody grows up and might be experiencing certain health phenomenons or be vulnerable to different stressors or experiences in their life is just one example. I find that class so fascinating because I'm also so interested in health. I feel like it relates to our work here because it's kind of that switch that I've had from thinking about the individual and individual responsibility towards something that's maybe has to do more with the system or the conditions or the group that someone is a part of. With that class, I always used to think of something like health as simple and individual, but I've kind of expanded my thinking away from that to understanding what's wrong with these systems that shape our lives and our society. So think about things like accessibility, exposure to stressors, environmental factors, our families, our friends, all of that have an impact on our health. And then with our work, it has an impact on causing harm and experiencing harm. And then another thing where I've seen nuance is just in the topic of human communication as a whole. It's so complex and contains so many nuances. People can interpret language very differently from one another based on different beliefs or backgrounds that they have, which is especially difficult when we're talking about a topic like sex or sexual assault, which can already be seen as taboo and difficult to talk about, we really have to navigate this language and communication to be able to understand it together, make changes, and grow. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Lauren. I think that it is time to wrap up, but I want to leave our listeners with a few takeaways. My first takeaway that I want to leave them with is that sexual violence is a lot more complex than we think, so we can't be addressing it with these, you know, simple, one-size-fits-all solutions. And following the One Million Experiments philosophy, if we want to actually start to end or prevent relationship and sexual violence, we really have to lean into that nuance and really engage with trying so many different things. Another one is that there is no perfect answer. I wish there was, and I wish there could be a list of everything I should do and everything I shouldn't do. But as we've seen, that's exactly the problem 
If we focus less on the labels of our actions, meaning what's consensual or not, what's illegal or not illegal, and we actually start focusing on the real impact that our words and actions have on our partners and the people around us, that's where I think we could see the real change. Exactly. Like if we give people the opportunity to like confront nuance, people will understand what it is. Okay, we had a great conversation today. I want to thank you, Lauren, for joining me, and thank you to everyone for listening. I'm your host, Jillian McBain, from the McCluskey Center for Balance Prevention, Research, and Education. Theme music is by Lobo Loco. And special thanks to Robert Nelson of the Marriott Library for Technical Help and Allie Moore, graduate assistant, for editing and producing this episode. See you next time.